0: Tonight we're returning to our open study format, and I thank you for those who have been helping out by sending me questions via email primarily, and also a couple of people have handed me questions, and uh, we've got a good list of things to work with, and I won't get to all of the questions I currently have right now, I haven't lost track of any of the questions that have been given to me, so we will cover uh, some of those questions tonight, I say some in faith. I think we'll get more than one question done. And then I'll save the rest for our next open study, which will be scheduled at the end of June. So if I don't get to your schedule tonight, I mean to your question tonight, please understand that uh, we're going to be doing that special study in in Ephesians 5 next month, and then uh, two, two months from now we'll get back to our open study format. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we have together to open your word and to uh, consider the questions that you have stirred up in one another's hearts. I pray that you would use these questions and the answers that we'll be considering from your word to carry us forward into a deeper place of understanding your plans, your purposes, and your ways in all of our lives. And we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, as always, just I want to mention, make sure we're, we're uh, tracking together. In this open study format, uh, feel free... To interact, um, it's a little bit different than our normal study. So, if you have a question, if my answer stirs a question in you, don't hesitate. Raise your hand, and we'll uh, we'll do. I'll be glad to do a back and forth kind of thing. If it doesn't work out for the uh, for the recording, we'll just uh, we'll just keep it for our church members. If it does work out for the recording, then we'll upload it to sermon audio as we normally do. All right, our first question is from Romans chapter four. Why don't you turn there? And this is a question from someone who's been very patient, because they've been waiting for a few months now for me to get to this question. Romans chapter 4, we're going to read verses 10 and 11. It's uh, part of a much longer section of teaching, of course, but the question is specifically focused in the wording of these verses in Romans 4, 10, and 11. Paul writes, how then was it counted to him? It's talking about Abraham, and it's talking about Abraham's righteousness before God. How then was it, his righteousness, how was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Okay, the question that was asked, and I'll read it here in just a moment, is, is centered on Paul's use of these two key terms, sign and seal. The question was, is there a difference between the two terms, sign and seal, and what do those terms mean? All right, let me just read verse 11 again. Paul writes, referring to Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision. So what we have so far is, in this passage, circumcision is called a sign. And we'll define our terms in just a moment. Okay, so it says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal. Back to the text again. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. All right, these are key terms, and the question um, that was originally asked even included some background on how a particular theological orientation has used these terms throughout history. The question included some details about how what we refer to as those who consider themselves reformed doctrinally, reformed theologically, how they have used these key terms, sign and seal, to describe different aspects of our relationship to God and his covenant, okay? And the question is, what do these terms mean? Are they the same thing, or are they two distinct things? Historically, as the Reformed theologians have used these terms, they have, they have without saying it directly in this way, they have essentially said they're, they're two completely separate things that are connected or related to each other. What I'm going to be sharing tonight is, I think that what the Bible does in using these terms is describes that they are really one thing with two different aspects. Now, this is a very subtle difference between saying something there are two separate things that are connected or related versus one thing that has two aspects to it. Think more like uh, you know a common image that we use is like a coin, which has two sides, and you know when you flip a coin. You've got heads and you've got tails. They're both sides of the same coin, but they do represent different aspects of what that coin is symbolically communicating to our lives, okay? And so in that sense, what I'm going to be describing is that sign and seal are essentially one thing, but with an emphasis, the reason different terms are used, emphasizing different aspects of that one thing. Now let's do a little brief background in the Old Testament before I give you a definition that works for me. First turn, if you would, back all the way to the book of Genesis, chapter 9. When we attempt to define these terms, it's always wise to consider how the Bible uses them in the history of the Lord's communication about these issues. We should, if we can, derive our definitions from the Lord's usage rather than just inventing our own ideas about these key terms of the covenant. And what we're going to find is that the word sign in relationship to the covenant, and you guys all understand the covenant, right? The covenant is a formal relationship that God establishes with some human beings in history. There is a general sense in which God is related to every human being. He is creator of everyone. Everyone is his creation. But he has a special relationship with those that he chooses by drawing them into a covenant relationship. That special relationship is not like the relationship he has with every human being on the face of the earth. It's special. It's unique. Right? Now, when we encounter this key term sign in Scripture, we're going to find that the Lord introduces this term a long way before he introduces the second term that we'll focus on in a moment, which is the term seal. So sign is our key focus first. Genesis chapter 9, we're going to read from the story of the Lord's interaction with Noah. And this is, of course, Immediately following the events that we know as the flood, the ark of Noah, and now Noah has exited the ark, and the Lord is interacting with him. Chapter 9, Genesis, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, And every beast of the field with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. "...I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds..." And of course, he's referring here to what we commonly refer to as the rainbow. "...and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh." When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, three times in this passage, and it's clearly a covenant-focused passage, but three times in this passage, God introduces this phrase, sign of the covenant and he identifies the sign of the covenant as the rainbow in the clouds and in this particular case it's a sign that God is going to use to be a symbol that he will never again flood the earth like he did just prior to this conversation and judge the earth in that way all right now in In what sense does the rainbow relate to the covenant relationship between God and Noah? Is the rainbow itself the covenant? No, the rainbow is not the covenant. It is a sign of the covenant, which means it is some kind of external visible symbol of the agreement. External... It's an external visible sign of the agreement between God and Noah. The agreement is greater than the sign. The agreement is first. The agreement has to be in place in order for the sign to mean anything. But once that agreement's in place, when God says this, and it's up to God to choose because we have to be super clear about this, covenants are always... God's initiation with humanity. I can't just decide, I think I'll form a covenant with God and for him to honor that. It just doesn't work that way. God always initiates a covenant relationship with people. And when he initiates a covenant relationship, and this is true for every covenant, every covenant, God chooses for each covenant a specific one, single specific sign representing in a visible, external, tangible way, the essence of what that covenant relationship between God and the people that he's formed that covenant with really means. And so in this particular case, the covenant between God and Noah, and not just God and Noah individually, but God and Noah and his family, God and Noah and his descendants, God and Noah, his descendants, and all creatures on the face of the earth, was that I'm forming a covenant to establish that I will never again flood the earth and destroy all living flesh on the face of the earth like I did this last time. And whenever I see the rainbow, it will remind me that I have made this promise. And whenever you see the rainbow, you can take courage and, and take to heart that that will never happen again. This is evidence of my continuing commitment to the promise that I have made. That's what the sign functions as. That's the, the purpose of the sign. All right? But the relationship, the covenant, is greater than the sign. For instance, if the rainbow, by some stretch of the imagination, never appeared again, would that mean that the covenant itself has faltered and fallen? No, because the covenant is based upon God's integrity. The covenant is based on God's faithfulness to keep whatever promise he makes to the people that he forms that covenant with. And of course, the fact that the sign continues, the visible external sign, is just evidence for our sake, for our benefit, that he's still committed to it, just like he was committed to it that day. That's why, even though scientists will tell you, oh no, this has nothing, there's no spiritual purpose to it at all, there's no reason for it, it just happens other than, you know, the scientific reasons, of course. But whenever you see a rainbow in the sky, you should think of this passage. Because that's why it's there, and that's what it means. And, you know, yes, is there scientific information connected to why rainbows happen? Yes, God has designed rainbows in such a way that there's real physical reasons why they happen. But they happen not just because of those physical reasons. They happen because God causes rainbows to be visible as a covenant sign that's still in force to this day because he's never going to flood the earth again in that way that he did in Noah's day. All right, so that's the essence of a sign. It's an external, visible reminder of the covenant relationship that God has formed. Now let's look at another passage. Genesis also, chapter 17. We're fast-forwarding from Noah's day to Abram's day. And in Genesis 17, this is a new covenant relationship. Not new covenant in the sense of what we refer to as the new covenant in Christ, but new covenant in the sense that this is a subsequent covenant after the covenant God made with Noah. A new and additional covenant. Not with Noah any longer. Noah's not even alive at this point. This is a covenant God makes with Abraham. We'll read in... The whole chapter is, is pertinent, but we'll read starting in verse 9 of, of Genesis 17. And I'll read through to verse 11. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it That's the circumcision. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So we have this key terminology again, sign of the covenant. Remember I mentioned that every covenant God forms must have a sign. These are God's rules, not mine. He chooses for each covenant a new sign to signify in an external invisible way the covenant relationship between God and whoever he forms that covenant with. In this case, Abram, Abraham and all of his descendants after him. In Noah's covenant, the sign was the rainbow. In Abraham's covenant, the sign is circumcision. This is the principle that Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, where we started, in which he is dealing with this interaction on this day between God and Abraham and the fact that God commanded Abraham to be circumcised and that he gave him this act of circumcision as a visible sign that he was forming a covenant relationship with him. Paul asks the question in Romans 4, well, what about Abraham's relationship with God and the righteousness that he had in this relationship with God? Did that, did that come before He was circumcised, or was it a result of him being circumcised? And Paul's point in Romans 4 was that God made Abraham a righteous man before he actually was circumcised, and that his circumcision follows his righteousness, meaning that the circumcision then is a visible sign, not just that Abraham has a relationship with God that we call a covenant, but that he has a particular kind of relationship in which he is identified by God as righteous. By God's evaluation, God's definition. We don't mean perfectly righteous, as though Abraham never sinned, never failed, never blew it, never had any issues. We all know from Abraham's story that he did at times, you know, do the wrong thing, make unwise choices, even sin in a couple of circumstances. Um, that are recorded for us in Scripture. But he's identified and evaluated by God as, and declared to be by God, as a righteous man. The question is, did his circumcision create his righteousness? Or did something else create his righteousness? Well, we learn from Paul's teaching that it wasn't circumcision that created righteousness in his heart. It was what? Faith. Now, of course, faith is a response itself to a grace that God had poured into his heart to trust and believe and obey and follow God. But the idea being that the circumcision didn't cause him, the sign didn't cause the covenant standing with God. It's the result or the outflow of that covenant relationship that's already established with God. And so it points to what is the core of the covenant relationship with God. It doesn't... It, in and of itself, is not that core. It's simply a sign or a symbol of that core of that covenant connection between the two of us, or between the two of them, God and Abraham, or whoever is in covenant with him. All right, now, with all of that background, let me give you a a basic working definition of these two key terms, sign and seal. But let's do this, since we've got this Background info. Let's go back to Romans four and reread our key verses because we need to re- we need to introduce at this point now the second term that Paul uses, which is the term seal. And the, our original question was, what's the relationship between these two concepts, sign and seal, of the covenant? Okay, Romans four, verse eleven. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had. Not that he was gaining, but that he already possessed. He already had, by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. Meaning, God gave him the grace to believe in faith and to follow him and obey him and respond to him in the right way before he was ever circumcised with the sign of the covenant. And that's, that's the indicator that the basis of the covenant was already in place between God and Abraham. But then once that relationship was formalized, God gave him a sign to externally and visibly indicate the nature of that covenant. And then he introduces this second term, which is seal. So let's get these two terms defined. Sign of the covenant and seal of the covenant. The first, this is is how I'm going to define these terms for our sake. A sign is a mark or a token. It's a symbol pointing to a greater reality. Okay, so a symbol pointing to greater reality. Okay, so, in this case, like circumcision, it's a symbol that Abraham was righteous before God. It doesn't make him righteous, but it points to a greater reality that's already taking place in his heart, which is that his faith has made him righteous before God. Right? Now, the second term, seal, I'm going to define this way, it's a stamp to authenticate, secure, or confirm ownership. It's a stamp to authenticate, secure, or confirm ownership. So I'm just going to put part of this on in our board here. Stamp to confirm ownership. Now, in the ancient world, we've talked about this concept of sealing before. If you were to go to the marketplace and do a, a business transaction, and you were to give a certain amount of money to the person in the market for, let's say, 10 uh, goats, there would be some kind of contract that would be drawn up as far as this transaction goes. I'm going to give you $10, and you're going to give me 10 goats in return for those $10. The reason for the contract being drawn up is that when you leave the marketplace with the 10 goats, and later, the authorities come and say, where did you get these ten goats? You want to be able to prove, to authenticate, that you really own these goats now. You didn't steal them from the man in the market. You rightly, righteously purchased these goats. And so he would draw up a contract, describe the, the details of the, of the transaction between you and, and the, the, the person that was doing business in the marketplace, roll that contract up, drip wax on the place where it's folded and then put like a a stamp into that into that hot wax which would mark and each stamp was was uniquely carved to symbolize the particular owner of that stamp and it would seal that contract all right and that was the confirmation that ownership had been transferred from one person to another Now, how this works in a covenant circumstance is that the seal here represents what is happening between us and God in this covenant relationship, that there has been a transaction in this covenant. Something has occurred to where I no longer am legally outside of covenant relationship with God. I am now formally and officially and legally in covenant relationship with God and I need some kind of authenticating confirmation to prove to anyone that asks or anyone that looks at me or anyone that evaluates that yes, I've been transferred from where I started outside of covenant with God, I've been transferred from there into a new covenant relationship with God. Now, how do these two things connect to each other? What's interesting about Paul's wording in the Romans 4.11 passage is that he indicates that, as I'm wanting to emphasize, that these two terms are in some sense aspects of the same thing, not two completely different and separate things. Reading just verse 11 again, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal. So he received the sign as a seal. Now what does that tell you by leaving out the word circumcision there just so that we can can connect these words more closely as we're meant to understand them? In some important sense, the sign is a seal. And the seal is connected to the sign. So again, using our original image, I'm saying these are like two sides of one coin, the head and the tail of one single spiritual principle that's happening in this circumstance. Now what in Abraham's case was the sign of the covenant? This is in Abraham's case, not in our case, not in Noah's case. Remember, each covenant has its own seal and it has its own sign. It has its, and, and we don't choose what the sign is for each covenant, God does. So in Abraham's case, what's the sign of the covenant? Circumcision. Okay, so according to Paul, circumcision is the sign of Abraham's covenant, but it also functions as a seal of the covenant. Both and, not either or. Not two separate things, one single thing that's happening with two different aspects to it. Okay, if sign is primarily focused on external and visible, you can leap ahead of me and anticipate what seal might be focused on. Internal And just for consistency, we could say spiritual, but for consistency's sake, we'll say invisible. Meaning, not readily apparent to human perspective. Okay? So, here's God and Abraham. Abraham is just a man, just like the rest of the people in the face of the earth. But God has a special purpose for him. God sovereignly chooses Abraham out from the whole population of planet earth at that time. He appears to Abraham, he speaks to Abraham, and he says, I am forming a covenant between myself and you, Abraham. Now, what God goes on to say is, the sign of this special relationship that we're going to have, that we're going to enjoy, that no one else outside of you and your family is going to enjoy. No one else on the face of the earth had access and privilege to this relationship other than Abraham at this moment in history. The sign of this covenant relationship is going to be, "If you will obey me and you will be circumcised," that means that externally, because we know circumcision has a physical component to it: the removal of the foreskin from Abraham's body. All right? So it serves as an external invisible, even though and, and there's, this is kind of a semi-confusing aspect to this Abraham wore clothes, right? So it wasn't external invisible at all times to everyone. Okay? But nevertheless, it's external in his physical body. It's visible in in relationship to his physical body. Okay? So that's the sign of the covenant. It's a it's a symbol pointing to a greater reality. What's the greater reality it's pointing to? You have a covenant with God. And only you, no one else except for you and others in your family who do this same act have access to this relationship. But when At this moment, when God said these words, had he experienced the seal of the covenant yet? Even though he was already considered and counted according to Paul's instruction as righteous based upon his faith in the words of God before he carried out the act, he had not yet experienced the seal. Because the seal is part of, or an outflow, an outcome of the act of obedience of doing the act of circumcision. And so when Abraham heard the words of the Lord in his mind, because he's imagining, and it's you and I would, you know, if God appeared to me and said, okay, I'm forming a covenant relationship with you. This is what you need to do in order for us to have this covenant relationship. Even before I do it, I already understand what is involved. And I'm already imagining what I'm going to have to do to do that, okay? But I haven't experienced it as a sealing element In my life, until I obey. So the seal element kicks in after or as an outflow of Abraham's obedience. When he obeys God and he follows through and he actually circumcises himself and his household in clear obedience to God's clear commandment, then he experiences that act of circumcision as a sealing element which means that now he is forever stamped as a confirmation that he is no longer outside of covenant relationship with God. From now on, permanently, he is in covenant relationship with God. Now, let me read to you one theologian's brief description of how these two things connect with each other. This is a quote from a man named John Murray, he is one of he lived in in uh, the last century in the 20th century he was one of the great theologians of that century and this was his brief treatment of these principles as they're connected murray said a sign points to the existence of that which it signifies in other words if you're driving along the highway and you see a sign say, saying and you're not to the sign yet you see it up ahead it says now entering Northridge as soon as you see the sign are you in Northridge No, it's pointing to a reality and once you cross that sign you've now been sealed you're in Northridge okay but if you stop on this side of the sign the sign still is functioning as a sign but you haven't experienced the sealing aspect of actually being in Northridge. So this is what Murray says. A sign points to the existence of that which it signifies, whereas a seal authenticates, confirms, and guarantees the genuineness of that which is signified. So two sides of the same coin. So in terms of of Abraham's existence, I mean Abraham's covenant uh, circumstance with the Lord, the circumcision focused on both elements at the same time, but Abraham's response to the commandment of God gave him, chronologically speaking, first an interaction with the sign aspect of circumcision, and then secondarily, the sealing aspect. He encountered the sign of circumcision even before he he acted it out. As soon as God said it to him, his mind and heart are dealing with the sign element, the symbolic element of it. But then when he carries it out and obeys God and actually circumcises himself and his household, then he's sealed with that same act. But it's the, the circumcision functions as both things to Abraham's life. Now for our lives, in, in terms of the new covenant, the sign and seal of the new covenant that God has chosen and this is a whole other study that I won't venture into, but just in case you're asking this, is water baptism. It is both, it functions both as the sign of entering into a new covenant relationship with God through Christ, which is, it's a, it's a sign of the washing of regeneration, the, the, the washing of new life, new birth in Christ. But it also functions as a seal in that You know, you can come and and sit and listen to a Bible study about water baptism and understand the concept of what it points to symbolically, but what do you need to do to experience it as a seal? You need to actually be baptized in Christ, in faith in Christ. All right, so um, that's a a brief tackling of the sign and seal concept, and I kind of am sidestepping... Uh, generations of theological debate on this. It's an interesting theological debate, but it's somewhat counterproductive to the main point of what, how the scriptures actually use those two key terms. All right, let's move on to our second question. This one's a completely different category, and uh, it's an interesting question in its own right. This is a question about magic. And uh, this person was interested in one particular variety of magic, but I'm going to broaden it out to cover all magic as a as a category. The question that was written was: Is voodoo magic real? Are practitioners of voodoo possessed by demons? Do things like this happen now? Do people practice real magic, or is it at all sta- or is it all staged today? If a person practices real magic, are they possessed by a demon? Now, as you noticed, that, that was more than one question. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to encompass all of that in a single answer. All right, here's the thing with magic it's a very interesting topic. And I'm going to give you, not because I'm avoiding getting to the point, but to clarify how the scripture deals with this issue, I'm going to give you a yes and no answer on this one. So, is magic real? And that includes voodoo or any other variety. The answer is yes, it's real. And no, it's not real. And, and of course, we have, to, we have to talk about in different senses. Let's tackle no first and then we'll look at yes. In what sense, and we're not talking about uh, the staged magic that this person was also asking about. In a sense, we could say there's three kinds of magic. One is staged, yeah, you know, uh, just think of some famous stage mu- magician, uh, you know, and there's been so many of those in history, um, you know, uh, who, who's the guy that is on TV with the big, David Blaine would be an example, he's very famous right now, as, uh, as a, or Chris Angel, those are, those are two of the more uh, currently uh, popular and famous ones. Okay, so stage magic, we're not even, I'm not even focused on that. You know, those are th- th- those acts are called magic for Hollywood purposes, but clearly we're not dealing with any kind of supernatural element. They're just illusions. They're sleight of hand. There's there's actual mechanical, real scientific uh, principles behind everything that they do. Even though if it looks and it's and, and the really good ones make it seem as though there's some supernatural element involved, but clearly no supernatural element at all whatsoever. That's the first kind. So we could just. Strike that one off that we 're not concerned about that we 're not focused on that, uh, whether or not you choose to go to a magic show and enjoy that to me ultimately, unless you know there's some other moral issues involved in that, I think you 're free to go and enjoy that or you 're free to not enjoy that either way there 's no biblical mandate about staged magic as far as I can tell, but there are two other kinds, and the other two kinds do concern us from a spiritual perspective. And and so let's tackle these from a yes and no perspective. First, no. Is there any such thing, and we're talking about real magic here, where a person has magical power, is there any such thing as human-generated magic? The answer is absolutely no, under no circumstances, ever, now, any time in history or ever will be, period, not at all, zero, zilch, nada. So don't ever think, oh, well, maybe this person is the exception. There are no exceptions to this principle. There is no human-generated magic. And I'm going to use just probably the most popular uh, from, from um, you know, recent uh, books and Hollywood expressions of this. We're talking a Harry Potter type magic here. Now, I don't know if any of you are Harry Potter fans or not. If you are, I'm going to have to trample on your toes a little bit here. But um, if you're not, maybe you'll be cheering me on. Um, In the Harry Potter story, I've never read any of the books, and out of all the movies that have been made, I only went to see one of them just to make sure I knew what was going on and what was being portrayed. But the essence of the Harry Potter story is that Harry is this young teenager in in the books, I guess, that um, is discovered to have special magical abilities that need to be trained, need to be fostered, need to be kind of developed and brought out. It's almost portrayed as though Harry had a special spiritual gift, and that gift can be developed, enhanced by proper training from those who have previously learned how to harness their own magical powers. Now, in this universe of fantasy in the Harry Potter stories not everyone has magical powers but some do some special individuals have this ability this capacity okay and where does the magic come from in the Harry Potter stories where does it come from it comes from him he generates this power and it's kind of like a a, a training process where he has to learn how to how to you know generate the magical powers that he is, you know, that he is expressing in the story. There is no such thing as human-generated real magic. If there was, and I'm just going to pick two names as an example, I could choose more than two, there are two individuals in human history that we would have seen doing magic, real magic. Those two individuals, Adam And Jesus, who is referred to in the New Covenant as the last Adam, the second Adam, the final Adam. All right. If human beings were created by God with the ability to generate from within themselves magical powers, you would have seen Adam doing magic in the Garden of Eden. Right? It only makes sense because there's no fall yet. There's nothing hindering the expression of his magical powers. And he has a direct connection with God. God comes and talks with him and walks with him in the garden. Certainly, if if he needs just training to express his magical powers, God, who, if there are magical powers, they would have had to have been given to him originally by God who created him, because he didn't just create Adam, he created all people through Adam. But the fact that God created him indicates that magic would have originally had to come from God, giving him that ability, that unique special capacity. But we don't see Adam doing any magic, do we? Of course not. Now, we fast forward to Jesus. If anybody is a good example of doing magic, it would be Jesus, right? And there are some who look at the story of Jesus and see him doing various amazing things, wondrous, miraculous kind of things, walking on water, multiplying loaves and fish, feeding multitudes, uh, raising people from the dead, opening blind eyes, opening deaf ears, you know, healing um, withered limbs, and, and so many other things besides just the ones that I've mentioned. You could look at that and say, well, clearly Jesus was doing magic. And if you have a certain kind of worldview where you want to, you need to interpret the acts of Christ, the acts of Jesus from a magical worldview perspective, you certainly could, could make a case for slotting him into that category and say Jesus was the ultimate magician. But of course, the scriptures are, are, are careful to distinguish the things that Jesus did from what we commonly refer to in common usage as magic. Jesus never did a single act of magic. Ever. Ever. Okay, Why do we know that for sure? Just the definition of magic. Magic is this power, this supernatural power that apparently is generated out from the human being themselves. Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture. First, Matthew chapter 5. First of all, Jesus, while he didn't directly address the question of magic, meaning no one ever asked him directly, what about magic? You know. <laughs> Nevertheless, you know, we can derive from things that he did address, principles that apply to the question about magic. This is one of those passages. Matthew five thirty six. I just want to look at a single verse. This is where Jesus taught what I'm going to identify or categorize as human inability. Human inability from a spiritual standpoint. Matthew 5:36 This is from the famous teaching of Jesus what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He said, "And do not take an oath by your head. For you, and the you here is not just you this one person, he's talking to a multitude of people. This applies to all humanity. He said, "Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black." Now, oath taking was a very common practice in the ancient world. And Jesus here is, is teaching a, a spiritual principle saying that people who take oaths are unwise to do so. Because whenever a person took an oath, they're, they're connected to that oath, was a, a, a way to confirm to the person that you're giving the oath to that I am promising and ensuring that what I'm taking this oath about, I am going to follow through and I'm going to make this happen the way I say it will happen. Jesus says don't do that. Why? You don't have the power to keep your oath. You don't have the ability to to make sure in all of history that follows that what you say is going to happen will happen. There's only, and the implications of his teaching here, is there's only one being, that has that kind of power. That's God himself. But we are so unable to fulfill our oaths that we don't even have the power inherent within ourselves, the ability inherent within ourselves, to turn one hair from white to black. Now, here's the thing. If we had magical power, we could do such a thing as that. I mean, in the Harry Potter movies, he does a lot more than just turn a single hair color from white to black or black to white. He causes all kinds of amazing things to take place by the power that he generates from within himself. Now, what Jesus says is no one has that kind of power. Not even, I mean, let alone that great kind of expression of power that we see in the Harry Potter movies, we don't even have the power to turn our own hair from one color to another. I mean, you can sit there and you can concentrate and literally you could spend the rest of your life Attempting to accomplish this, and you could muster up all of the the amazing internal focus of all of your powers upon, you know, Sydney. I'll use you as an example if you don't mind. Sydney has white hair. Okay? Could Sydney, if he spent the rest of his life, concentrate and turn his hair black again? Well, maybe with the help of hair color for men, you know, from the local pharmacy. But just with power resident within himself, no, he doesn't have that ability. You know, me, I'll use myself as an example. It's not an issue of turning hair from one color to another. If I had the power to generate new hairs on my head <laughs> through magical ability, do you, you know, I mean, that would be, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? And if you, could, if you could do that for yourself and for others, you'd have it made in the shade. But, uh, you know, we just don't have that ability. So, number one, Jesus teaches complete human inability in terms of magical potential. Two is, let's look at another passage. This is in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. He didn't just teach human inability, he modeled human inability. Now, you might look at Jesus and say, well, if anybody's able to do stuff, supernatural, magical kind of stuff, it would be Jesus, right? Wrong. Jesus, throughout all of his years here in this world, had no ability to do any magical, supernatural thing if we're to believe his own testimony about his abilities. Let's read John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now, here we know from the context that when he refers to the Father, he's referring to the Father God. And when he refers to the Son, he's referring to himself in the unique and special relationship that only Jesus enjoyed. This, I mean, we are all through faith in Christ, now identified as sons and daughters of God. But Jesus alone has that unique relationship with God in which he, is, he was the son of God before he was born. And then, of course, that identity, that core identity, carries throughout his life here in this world and on into eternity. But what he says is, truly, truly, you've heard me emphasize this how many times? What's the point of him saying truly, truly? It's not just like a, you know, it's not just like a, a metrical, interesting thing to get our attention. It's, it's a way of emphasizing and saying, look, what I'm about to say, even though everything that I say is important, what I'm about to say is doubly significant. Pay careful attention to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. Now that 's either a true statement or it's not a true statement what what do you what do you conclude i'm saying it's true i'm putting my i 'm putting all of my emphasis where Jesus put his emphasis now is he is he just exaggerating to make a point or is he saying this is the way it really is as a human being now we're not and he's not saying this that before he was born he didn't have the ability the power all in fact as we know him pre-incarnate in his identity, he had access to all power in heaven and on earth as God the Son. But in his incarnate life as a human being here on earth, he said the Son, truly, truly the Son can do nothing of his own accord. Nothing. I mean, turn one hair white or black, Or any other magical, so called magical expression. Let's look at another passage in John, uh, same chapter, just a little bit further down the chapter, verse 30. He just emphasizes the same point a second time. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Okay, I can do nothing on my own. The Son can do nothing. On his own accord, of his own accord, but only what he sees or only what he hears from the Father. Meaning that any power that we see expressed in and through the life of Jesus—and we saw a lot of power through Him—I gave the list just a moment ago of, of the various expressions of awesome power, power beyond imagination, through His life. But according to Him, the right way to understand that expression of power was not. It was not generated from within Himself. It was generated by whom? God the Father and funneled through God the Son who was able to do nothing on His own accord. It was all the Father's power being expressed through Him. Why would Jesus, who before His incarnation had access to all of that power, choose for the duration of His life here in this world as a human being to not access that power and to be able to do nothing of his own accord, because he's modeling for us the reality of our lives. The reality of our lives is we don't have the power to just snap our fingers and make things change in this world. Yes, go ahead. Yes, he could have. If you're asking, could he have at any moment chosen to access his own power? Absolutely. But of course, in doing so, he would have changed the dimensions of the reality of the incarnation, because he would have been doing so as God, not as God the Son incarnated as a human being. He would have been doing so as God the Son. And his mission was to live out his entire life here on this earth as a human being, which he did so. Under the same rules, so to speak, that you and I live our lives as human beings. It wouldn't have been sin, it just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have fulfilled the plan and purpose and mission that he was given to accomplish, you know? I mean, it, it, you, we can make a case and say he was free to do whatever he wanted to do. But of course, he did what he did, and I'm making this emphasis that it was a model for us. And we're deriving an, a, a model from Christ's life as an example to us to prove that there is no human ability to generate magical powers within ourselves. Okay, so that's the no aspect of magic. But I am saying there is a yes aspect of magic. So the question that was asked, is magic real? And we're talking about supernatural magic, spiritual magic. So no, it's not real if we're talking about human-generated magic. Yes, though, it's real if we're talking about just the expression of magic. Is there real magic that happens in the world? And here I'm just defining magic as supernatural power. Above nature. Beyond nature. So if we're looking at magic from a human generation perspective, no. No. It has never happened in all of human history. Doesn't happen now. Will never happen. Can't happen. But if we're looking at it from a bigger picture perspective and say, is there any real supernatural power in this world? Well, of course, yes. There's plenty of it. And there's two kinds. This is, I'm back to my original three kinds. The first one we crossed out, which was stage magic. There are two kinds of supernatural power in the world. There's good kind and there's bad kind. The good kind is God's power. Now, do we ever want to associate God's power with magic? Probably not, but here's the deal. To the uninformed, uneducated individual that sees an expression of God's power, it's going to look like magic to them. And we see some examples of this in Scripture, where God did something, and to a casual observer that didn't really understand what was going on, it looked like magic was being done. So any miracle is in that sense based upon that fundamental definition of supernatural power and expression. Any miracle is magical. It's supernatural. It's above nature. But all good magic is God. It's His power. And I don't want to even call it magic because it's just confusing. You know, so we'll just say supernatural power God expresses supernatural power in the earth. He has done so throughout history. He does so today, and he will always do so until the second coming of Christ. And even beyond that, we see God's supernatural power in expression. And to the uninformed, it can look like and even be categorized, identified as magic. It doesn't make it magic. It's something else. It's something greater than magic, okay? Now, the bad kind. Is there bad magic? And the answer is yes. Real bad magic. Let's look first. You should be familiar with this story. All the way back in Exodus chapter 7. This is Moses going back to Egypt. God has sent him to Egypt now on a mission. The mission is to uh, deliver the children of Israel from slavery to Pharaoh. And Moses, with Aaron by his side, appears in the court of Pharaoh to make that declaration, let my people go, speaking on behalf of the Lord. And we're going to pick up the story in Exodus 7, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. What do you think, at that moment, Pharaoh and his servants thought about what they were observing? Magic. That's exactly what they were thinking. And the, the way the story unfolds is the proof that that's exactly what they were thinking. Now, was it actually magic? Well, on my, but using my definition, yeah, you can make a case and say it was. It's supernatural power, but it's power from God. It's not normally what we call magic. Okay, so he, he threw, they threw down the staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Verse 11, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. You can translate that word, magician, either way. He summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret... Arts. All right, what did they do the same? They took staves that they were holding and threw them down on the ground, and their staves turned into snakes. Now, there are some um, so called theologians that look at this passage and say it didn't really happen like that. They just were really good illusionists. And they made it look like David Blaine or Chris Angel or one of those. They made it look like their staffs turned into serpents. Some of those, you know, professional magicians can be pretty impressive with the illusions that they can create by sleight of hand and whatnot. That's not what's going on here. This is not sleight of hand. These men threw down staffs that were wood, and those wooden staffs turned into snakes, real snakes. That's the clear implication of the passage. To read it any other way is reading into the passage what we want to see there, rather than reading out of the passage what is actually being revealed by God through Moses as he writes it, okay? And it says that they did this by their secret arts. Now, what are their secret arts? We don't know. It's a secret. (laughs) I'm just joking. (laughs) <laughs> there are secret arts what, what what's going on here and you know this isn't just this isn't just the egyptian sorcerers you know there have been groups like this through all of human history in every culture every society we have them in our culture and our society today these are people that find these secret magical books and teachings and incantations and formulas and herbal concoctions and, and drug use and, and various things, trance-like states that they enter into, and they, they, they mix all of these up in a special, super exact way, and as a result, they gain supernatural powers, magical powers, and in their minds and hearts, not all of them, but many of them, they have created in themselves the ability to do magic. Is that what is really going on here? The answer is no, that's not what's really going on here. Their magical, their secret arts didn't give them the ability to turn these staffs from wood into actual snakes. What is going on here? What is going on here? And this is one of literally dozens of examples of this in Scripture. I wish we had the rest of the night to just Go through and do a, a quick survey of these. I don't have the time to do this. These are what we would call power struggle encounters between two kingdoms. And we're talking about spiritual kingdoms, not physical kingdoms like Egypt and Israel you know political kingdoms we're talking about spiritual kingdoms the bible teaches us from cover to cover that there are behind the scenes in history two kingdoms and these two kingdoms are in a kind of competition i say it's a kind of competition because ultimately there's no real competition here but there is a there is working out in history in specific circumstances there are moments where these two kingdoms encounter each other in the circumstances of this world in which expressions of power become the focal point of which kingdom will be superior to which in this circumstance. And so what we have here is Moses and Aaron as the representatives of God's kingdom. And we have Pharaoh's sorcerers, his magicians, as the representatives of the competing kingdom, which is called And by various terms in in Scripture, it's called the kingdom of darkness, it's called Satan's kingdom, it's called the kingdom of the devil, it's called the kingdom of the God of this world, you know, God like little g. You know, there are different terminologies that describe this, but that's what we're talking about, okay? And so when they threw down their staves and they became serpents, it wasn't because these magicians had trained like Harry Potter and suddenly gained supernatural ability to do this. It's because the kingdom that they represented had the power to do this and chose to do it through them. Just like Moses did not have the power to turn his staff into a serpent, where was that power from? It was from God. These men that were opposing him were not reaching into their own well of power. It was a demonic expression of power through them as representatives of this demonic, resistant kingdom. All right, let's look at another one. Acts chapter 8. We're fast-forwarding into the New Testament. There there were several others we could have looked at in the Old Testament. But this one is, uh, and we'll look at two in the book of Acts. These are both helpful, I think, to capture this same concept I wanted to show you one in the Old Testament and a couple in the New Testament to show that these kind of things continue to happen today. It's not just like, oh yeah, this is ancient history back in the days of Moses. Uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 9. This circumstance, the background is, Philip, who is called an evangelist of the early church, has gone to the city of Samaria, Samaria and he's proclaimed the gospel of salvation through Christ to this city. The entire city is impacted by his message, but one person in particular, in the way they relate to this message, is the focal point of this story. It says in verse, I'll just read from, um, I'll read, to, just to get a little background, it says, uh, starting up in verse uh, 5, it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them, the Christ, that's the Messiah. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now, just as, as an example, when it says the signs that he did, we're talking about spiritual expressions of power that were being done through Philip's ministry, through his life. Was it Philip that was causing these things? Even though the description says the signs that he did, and he did do them, It wasn't his power that was causing them. It was God's power through Philip. Verse 7. For unclean spirits. Now what is that? What is an unclean spirit? It's a demonic spirit. That's what we're talking about here in, in the context of the passage. So for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But, There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, we do not know in the story whether Simon had real power through demonic expression, or whether he was a charlatan and faking it. Either way, it doesn't really matter for the sake of the, the story that unfolds. But let's read on. It says, And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, here it's being performed through whom? Through Philip. Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, there's two apostles, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that it, uh, anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now Peter at that point stops him, rebukes him, basically says, You have no clue what you're asking for here, and you know this indicates that your, your heart's really not right with the Lord. The point I wanted to bring out was that Simon was observing genuine power from God, but he was interpreting it as magical power. And there's the possibility that he himself had been used to express real magical power, but it was not God's power, it was the alternative or the demonic expressions of power. It's also possible, of course, that it was just a, uh, it was a, uh, an illusionary kind of power. Let's look at one last passage, Acts 19. We'll end with this one tonight. This is later in uh, one of Paul's missionary journeys as he arrives in the city of Ephesus. And we'll read from verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Okay, was, were the hands of Paul causing the miracles? No. No. God was doing them, it was God's power, it was his miracle, but he was doing them by Paul's hands. So Paul is like a, he's like a funnel through whom God is pouring the miraculous power. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, which was, by the way, a a common, uh, it was actually like a profession, At this time in the ancient culture, there were people that in every town and every city worked as exorcists. If you felt like you had a demonic spirit, you would go and pay money and they would come and try to cast the demons out of you. So it says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Why would they do that? They had seen spirits coming out through the ministry of Paul he used the name of the Lord Jesus, and they, so they looked at the use of the name of Jesus like a, a new magical incantation that had a lot of power, and so we'll, we'll make use of that as well. And so they said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognized, but who are you? There's a lot of humor in that response, but uh, let's move on with the main point here. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. Now, is this because this guy was like Hercules, you know, just had been working out a lot and was, uh, was uh, you know, learning martial arts, and so he leaped on them and was able to overpower them like Bruce Lee? What's going on here? He overpowers them because he's still filled with a demonic Uh, influence and he has been empowered by that demonic power and says he overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus both Jews and Greeks and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magical arts or magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is another one of those kingdom encounters that I was referring to from the Pharaoh and Moses story where there's a, it's like a clash of two kingdoms And it's a power struggle to see which kingdom is going to prevail in this society, in this culture, in this circumstance. And in this case, the focal point was the city of Ephesus. What we discover is that many of the inhabitants of Ephesus were committed to the practice of magical arts. Now, in their minds, they're thinking, my books, my special magical books are teaching me and training me how to do magic if there was real power being expressed through their lives, it wasn't the books that was causing it, it wasn't the power within them that was causing it, it was a demonic influence that in a sense they were opening their lives to through this practice of magical arts. It's kind of like it's like um, creating an, a, a behind-the-scenes connection between powers that are looking for avenues through which to express themselves in the earth. Okay, And so... To answer your question, bottom line, yes and no. Yes, there is real magic in the world. No, there's not real magic in the world. No in the sense that there is no human-generated magic. Yes, in the sense that there's real supernatural power. There's both the good kind, which only comes from God, and of course it's by his definition, and we need to study the scriptures in order to understand what is real and what is, what is a righteous expression of his power, and then there's the bad kind which is always outside of human ability and it's demonic in its origin and its orientation. Okay? Any last questions about that tonight? Okay. We're Yes, Karen. Mhm. Right. Well, yes, in, from a biblical perspective, God is in authority over everything, even demons. In other words, demons are not what we would consider to be, and even Satan himself, from a biblical perspective, is not what we would call a free agent, able to do whatever he chooses to do whenever he chooses to do it. You know, we see examples of, of this throughout Scripture, but the classic one is in the book of Job, where Satan presents himself before the throne of God and gives an account for his activities and is given direction and permission of various degrees uh, to act in certain ways in the earth. So that's, you know, even Satan's power and all demonic power is ultimately under God's authority. But the fact that it's ultimately under God's authority doesn't, doesn't undermine the reality of real demonic beings and real demonic power being expressed through human beings that, that seek to connect with them. All right, God bless everyone, and um, remember...